40 years ago this summer, I had just graduated from high school. Less than a month later, I made my way to Colorado Springs for basic training at a military academy. It was a challenging summer, but by the end of August, we had made it through and were starting school. Labor Day weekend, last weekend, was known as Parents Weekend. It was the first time that we, could, we were allowed to see our parents. In fact, it was the first time that we were actually allowed to leave the academy grounds. Having been raised in a Christian home, one of the first things that we did was find a church to attend th- that particular Sunday. It's interesting, that very Sunday, 40 years ago, last week, was the same Sunday this church was planted. It didn't occur to me till this week. Well, hopefully... There, we would find a church that would be my um, church home during my cadet years. We found a little independent Baptist church and attended. My parents liked it well enough and asked the pastor if I could get a ride um, each Sunday to church. You see, freshmen weren't allowed to have cars. Well, of course, the pastor would arrange a ride for me. He called on his music director, actually, Rod Rogers, to pick me up. He was a sports guy like me and, and a quite likable guy, so we soon established a good friendship. In fact, he began inviting me out to dinner each week before taking me back to school, which was fine by me. You see, he had a daughter with whom I was soon smitten. She was a senior in high school, but alas, she was dating some other chump. (laughs) So we developed a friendship. I in love, she dating that rascal. At at some point uh, during her senior year, right at the beginning, probably 40 years ago this month, her senior pictures were taken, and she gave me one. Oh, how I adored that picture. I looked for it actually yesterday and found it. I know. (laughs) It was cute. I had that picture in my dorm room and gazed at it often. Did I mention... I was smitten. Let me tell you the rest of the story. As it happened, she broke up with that chump uh, in early March, right, right before her 18th birthday. She told me so in passing at church that Sunday. My response, oh, that's too bad. You want to go out this weekend? (laughs) Not kidding. She actually said yes. She was 17. I was 18. And that was it for me. The next week was her 18th birthday, and I sent her a dozen, I actually had to borrow the money from my parents, sent her a dozen long stem red roses, and now 40 years later, the rest is history. I left the academy, went to Bible college, asked her to marry me, and we were just over a year later. Why, why do I tell you that story? Well, I was in Missouri going to Bible college, and she was still in Colorado. We wanted to be together, and I still had that picture on top of my dresser. So so we planned a wedding, got married on June 6, 1980. She was beautiful. Still is, I might add. But can you imagine, after her father reluctantly walked her down the aisle and answered the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man, answered with her mother and I, and after we took our vows and she became mine, can you imagine me going home to our little efficiency one-room apartment on campus and staying committed to the picture, to hold the picture, gaze at the picture, love the picture. When sitting across our little apartment, I had the real thing. 
Why would I want the portrait, the shadow, the picture, when I had the real thing? She was mine. And I, hers. The, the truth is, I had to find the picture. It was tucked away in a box in a closet. This is exactly what some were considering doing with Jesus. The author of Hebrews was writing to a group of Jewish believers. We don't know who the author was, nor, nor do we know exactly who the original readers were. For, for lots of reasons I won't rehearse now, it's generally agreed that this was a small church, perhaps a house church, in likely Italy, composed of, of Jews who had converted to Christianity, who had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. As a result, they were facing some, some hardship, opposition, even persecution. How do we know? Well, for example, chapter 10, uh, verses 32 to 34 says this, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, coming to faith in Christ, you endured a great affliction of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulation, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. You identified with your brothers and sisters who were suffering. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Are you kidding? We'll talk about that in a few weeks. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So persecution had resulted in great sufferings, public reproaches, tribulations, even imprisonment, seizure of property. Further, chapter 12 uh, leaves open the distinct possibility that martyrdom was coming. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. The implication being, uh, but it's coming. So, so the author of Hebrews writes to this suffering church, which was frankly, well, they were scared to death. Some had begun avoiding contact with outsiders. Uh, some we'll see later in chapter 10 had, had stopped attending the corporate gatherings of the church. Some, most devastatingly, were considering returning to Judaism Perhaps some had already done so. After all, they were asking themselves some rather important questions. What's going on? <laughs> I thought it was prosperity for us. Where's God? Where's Jesus? Is all of this worth it? We weren't facing this kind of opposition in our old religion, Judaism. Maybe we should just go back. Yeah, it was during these challenges, word came that a letter written uh, especially to and for them had arrived. They, they gathered this small church probably in that home to hear it read. The author was likely well known to them, a leader in this new fledgling Christian movement. He's obviously well versed in the Old Testament and somehow knows well the situation uh, at the church. And so he writes this pastoral letter to care for them more, to love them, <laughs> to both encourage and, and to warn them. You see, from the author's perspective, this quitting Jesus and returning to Moses, leaving the, the, the new covenant um, to go back to the old covenant was like, well, it was like loving the picture more than the real thing with disastrous consequences. I mean, think about it. Do, do you think my wife and I would have saved Mary these 38 years if I said, thanks for saying I do, but I think I'm good with the picture? Why would you do that? Well, why would they? So he spends much of the heart of the, his letter demonstrating how Jesus w was better in every way. He's better than Moses. His Melchizedekian priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. His high priesthood is better than Aaron's. His, his sacrifice is better than the, those Levitical sacrifices. His blood is better than that of the animals. His one-time offering is better than the, the, the incessant 
yearly sacrifices. His heavenly tabernacle is better than the earthly tabernacle. How so? Because all of the Old Testament is simply a picture. Good as it is. It's a picture, a shadow of the good things to come in Jesus. Not that there was anything wrong with the Old Covenant. The, the law of Moses, the, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifice, nothing wrong with that. Far from it. After all, they were given by God, but they were always intended to be a type, a shadow, a picture pointing forward to Christ and his gospel. And now, since the gospel and the new covenant through the sacrifice and blood of Jesus has come, you can't hold on to the picture. You can't go back to the picture. Think of it this way. You've become part of the church, the bride of Christ. Why hold on to the picture when you have Christ himself? That's the point. You have the real thing. There's nothing to go back to. All that brings us to our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and following say this. For the law since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, have we heard this before, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices... Well, there's actually a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, who is he, comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have, you have taken no pleasure then I said, behold, I have come, per the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I have come to do your will, O God. And after saying above, sacrifices and, 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 and offerings and, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are, according to the, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's who he is. Once for all. Said it over and over that this, offer, that this author says some things over and over. Because not only are they incredibly important to him, incredibly important, but he brings out every nuance of the truth. Like a diamond, he examines each facet of the same glorious truth from a little different perspective. It's our responsibility as students of the Word to study and discover those great nuances of each eternal truth. So the outline of the text will actually look familiar. Two simple points. We're going to see the shadow or think of it as the picture of the old covenant and then the fulfillment or the real thing of the new covenant. Let's try to pick out the nuances as we focus on each of these uh, points, starting with the shadow of the Old Covenant. Verse 1 says, for the law, that's obviously speaking of the law of Moses, and then we remember the Old Covenant um, had both, uh, had 
the, the law of, uh, of Moses under its umbrella, the law of Moses, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the tabernacle for those offerings of worship and repentance when that law was broken. All of that, again, under the umbrella of the Old Covenant. But here, the author simply says, the law had only the shadow of the good things to come. And then we remember the Old Covenant was temporary. It was typological. We've been saying it. It was a temporary picture pointing forward to something much better to come, namely Jesus and his gospel and, uh, and the new covenant. So it's just a shadow. And the, the word speaks of a sketch or an outline or perhaps a likeness. And, and so, for example, a, a painter may sketch um, what uh, will be a beautiful painting on a canvas. As I understand, we still, there are still in existence some, some sketches that Da Vinci sketched that he never got around to painting. You see, the sketch is not the painting. It simply outlines what will be the painting. But even the painting, think about it. For example, the Mona Lisa is just a, paint, a picture of the real thing. I've seen it. It's like this big. It, I was shocked. Walked up there, dozens of people gathered around going, what is this? This must be something big. And I make my way through and I look at this little picture. I go, what's the big deal? I'm sorry, any art critics. Uh, what's the big deal? <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, I'm sitting there looking at it and everybody's taking pictures of this. And I'm going, what does Mona think? not the real thing. It was a likeness of it and pointed to it. So also the law was a sketch, a shadow pointing to better things to come. Notice it was, it was not the very form. It was not the very image of the thing. Think of it this way. It was just a two-dimensional outline, not the multi-dimensional reality. It was not the actual sunset. It was just a picture of the sunset. Have you, ever, have you ever done that? You know, you're standing at the beach and it's a beautiful, it's a glorious sun, sunrise or sunset. And you're taking, I don't know if you're like me, I taking pictures every like couple of minutes, you know. I, I mean, this is going to be great. It's going to be great. And then I downloaded the computer looking. I go, this is disappointing. It never captures, captures the glory of the real thing. That's the point. And therefore, his conclusion, it could never by the same sacrifices offered continually, year by year, reference to the Day of Atonement. It could never make perfect those who draw near. And yet, that is the point of religion, is it not? To make imperfect people fit, perfect, so, so, so that they can draw near to God? But we've seen over and over the old covenant practices never cleansed or purified or perfected the consciousness of the people so they could draw near. In fact, the whole setup was such that they, they could come close, but only so close. They could not ultimately draw near to God. They were kept unclean as they were at a distance. The purpose of the veil. You can't enter here. Verse 2. Otherwise... If those Old Testament sacrifices had worked, would they not have ceased to be offered? I mean, think, how many goats do you have to kill? Why a day of atonement every year, year after endless year, if they removed sin and purified the sinner and corresponding guilt? When the people cease to be conscious of their sins. But in fact, verse 3, those annual never-ending sacrifices did not remove sin. They simply reminded the worshiper of their sin and gave a promise of something much better to come. Every year, 
the, the, the sacrifice was offered, reminding the people they had sinned again and again, had ongoing sins that needed perpetual sacrifice. And so if you think about it, the Day of Atonement was actually, well, it had to be somewhat of a sad day, right? Because it reminded people they were sinners and guilty uh, sinners who needed ongoing atonement. Four, verse four, the author says something stunning, more than stunning, actually astonishing, offensive, shocking, outrageous. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, those were the animals offered on the day of atonement, impossible for their blood to take away sins. What? Are you kidding me? I thought that's why we did it. This is preposterous, preposterous. Pious Jews would have fought to their death defending that. Isn't that the truth of the old covenant? The author's argument has been those sacrifices were simply types, shadows that could never take away sin. They could never perfect the sinner, that is, make him or her holy. They could never make them fit to draw near to God. You see, there was only one. Who could do that? Only one. And I want to say in the same way, no amount of being good, no amount of sincerity, no no amount of faithfully following the tenets of this or that religion, even if it's Judaism, will do. They will never take away sin or its corresponding guilt. Think about it. What are, what are the ways that we, humans, humankind, what do we, how do we try to deal with our wrong and our guilt? Well, one of the favorite ways to do that today is to simply deny sin or guilt. It's just a human construct that we need to eliminate. If we could get rid of this idea of right and wrong and, and, and the guilt that weighs on us, we'd be okay. Right. Or we say, well, no one's perfect and try and justify it. Well, that's true enough. We, we, we might commit to never do that again, but then we often do, do we not? How many times have you, have you thought, I'll never do, and then you do? Or you do something else just as egregious. We might apologize, try to make things right. But how do you make things right with an offended holy God? How, how do you do that? We invent religions to make things right. (laughs) All the while ignoring the way of grace that God himself has provided as the only way. If all that blood of all those animals did not ultimately work, how do we make things right? Point two, the fulfillment is how. The fulfillment of the new covenant, verses five and following. The fulfillment found, I want to say this gently but firmly and clearly, that is found in Jesus alone. Verse 5, therefore, because the old covenant will never take away sins, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, stop right there. Again, who is he? It's going to become clear that this is Jesus. Two things to notice. First, when he comes into the world, is speaking when he comes into the world, speaking of the incarnation of Jesus, when he took on flesh to become the perfect God-man, to represent man to God, God to man. Remember earlier in Hebrews, we see he had to be made like us to represent us. 
And second, notice he came into the world and we are going to see that this conversation took place about a thousand years before the incarnation, which speaks of his preexistence. It's not that Jesus came into existence at his birth. No, 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 no. He came into the world from somewhere. In other words, Jesus existed before he was born to Mary. He has always existed. He, like the Father and the Spirit, are co-eternal. And from there, the author quotes Psalm 40 and applies it to Jesus. A conversation, if you will, between Jesus and his Father. No one else in the New Testament does that. This was never seen as a messianic prophecy until now, until Hebrews. But here's a point I want you to catch. The entire Bible is ultimately about Jesus, both Old and New Testaments. And we must read the Old Testament in view of the fulfilled coming of the Christ. Meaning in some way, everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. We remember On the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to two of his disciples who were perplexed uh, about his death and resurrection. And so starting with Moses and all the prophets, another way of speaking of the entire Old Testament, Jesus explained how that all of that pointed to him. So when we read the Old Testament, we should look for Christ because he is everywhere. And the author sees Christ here. Quotes this Psalm of David, applies it to Jesus, and Jesus has this conversation with the Father and basically says three things. First, the Old Testament sacrifices do not ultimately work. They are not what you, Father, have desired. Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. (laughs) What? But you said, I thought God was the one who instituted the old covenant. He's the one that gave the sacrificial system, right? Yes, he did. But it has always been, listen, make sure that you get this. It, It is always supposed to have been a matter of the heart. I'm gonna say it this way. God never wanted blood alone. That's the problem. He wanted the hearts of the worshipers who see in that sacrifice, ultimately the sacrifice of Christ, a recognition of their own sinfulness and thereby unworthiness, their need of repentance and their need of a savior. God has always wanted the the hearts of his people, a heart of repentance leading to love and obedience made possible by the work of Christ. That's why we needed a new covenant because the old one left us in our sinful states with hearts of stone and and no ability to obey. It has always been a matter of the heart, always. You can't just kill something and be okay. Consider these very familiar passages, 1 Samuel chapter 15. You remember that? This is after Saul had had violated the law. He was a king, he's not a priest, and and offered a sacrifice to God. Isn't that okay? No. He killed something. Samuel said to Saul, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Psalm 51, David's prayer of confession after a sin with Bathsheba. It's very interesting. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. I have this tremendous weight of guilt. Can I just kill something? You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. It's always been a matter of the heart, you see. 
Another familiar passage, Micah 6. We know the end of it, but it actually starts, what shall I, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the Lord, the God of high? Shall I come in with burnt offerings? With yearling calves, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 I mean, 10, rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn? Shall I kill my own firstborn? For my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Is that it? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, it has always been a matter of of the heart. Long passage that illustrates this outward obedience of the Jews, the people of God, uh, that that, that were obeying somewhat apart from the heart. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and, and goats. What? When you come to appear before me, who requires this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, the calling of assembly. I cannot endure iniquity. And the, solemn, and the solemn assembly, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. All this external stuff, all this flowing blood, meaningless without the heart, you see. Even if you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Not the blood of the sacrifices. You're murderers. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Here's the problem. You say, I can't exactly. And then, of course, our passage, the idea is this. Jesus said to the Father, you didn't send me as the great high priest to offer more sacrifices. And Peter says, thank you very much. No, you prepared a body for me because in burnt offerings and sacrifices you have taken no pleasure. So, okay, what does that mean for me? I, I, I'm not relying on the blood of some bull or a goat. Never have. Never, never sacrificed anything. I'm relying on the blood of Jesus. Good, that's good. That's really good. Listen to what I'm saying. That's good. But have you just gone through the motions like they did, praying a prayer, saying the right words, but never truly, listen, giving your heart to Jesus Christ? It's what he desires. Yes, his death was absolutely necessary. Don't misunderstand that. Have you ever truly repented of your sins? Truly made him the Lord of your life? Are you simply using his sacrifice as a fire escape out of hell so that you can live how you want? That is a legalistic belief that does not result in conversion See, I know the right things. I believe the right things. But have you ever surrendered your life to the one and only one who can save you from your sin and change your heart? Here's what I'm trying to say. God has always wanted obedient children who love him. Saved by grace through faith, yes, but then given new hearts, recognizing God to be our greatest love and greatest treasure a heart that seeks to, to, to know him and worship him and love him and serve him. It's about making much of him and, and bringing him greatest glory and receiving greatest joy in return. 
To be clear, I am not saying that your obedience saves you. Listen, it is not your obedience that saves you. That is brought about by the finished work of Christ on the cross. But having been saved, we find in Christ greatest joy and in, and, and, and in love, we obey him. We want to, you see. He becomes everything. Notice verse 8. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings, sacrifices for sin, you've not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. Do you see these sacrifices were offered according to the law of Moses, according to the old covenant, but they were not what God was ultimately uh, about. It's not what he ultimately desired. He desired the sacrifice which would result in sins forgiven and taken away, yes, and cleansed hearts and minds that worship freely. Then it? that understand who God is and what he's done. And doesn't take God's grace for granted. Very quickly, the second and third things that Jesus says to the Father are found in verses 7 and 9. Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. Let's stop right there. The second thing that Jesus says is all that he has carried out in his coming was, was written in the scroll, scroll, likely referring to the Old Testament. Every, here's the point. Everything that he did was prophesied. Further, it was according to God's plan. Listen, the cross of Christ was never plan B. It was always plan A. Always. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Plan A. Which leads to the third thing. I have come to do your will, O God. Most point this... Uh, point out that this is quite different from those dumb animal sacrifices. I don't mean dumb sacrifices, I mean dumb animals. They neither knew what they were doing, nor did they do so willingly. Jesus conversely did both. He knew what he was doing and did so willingly, obeying the will of the Father. We find over and over in the New Testament, Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father, carrying out his will in the redemption of God's people. Look at the end of verse 9 into verse 10 as we prepare to close. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and by doing so, he takes away the first. The first what? The first covenant, the old covenant, in order to establish the second covenant, the new covenant. By this will, the will of the Father, carried out by the Son, we have been sanctified that here the author of Hebrews means we have been saved, positionally holy right now, saved through the offering uh, of Jesus Christ. And he says it again, once for all. So as we close, what's the main point? What's the big idea today? The fulfillment of the old covenant by the new covenant has always been God's plan. It was prophesied way back in Psalm 40, a thousand years before Jesus was born. Jesus coming in a body, taking on flesh to do the will of God by dying um, for the sins of his people has always been God's plan. The, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant has always been a shadow, a, a picture pointing to Jesus, his gospel and the new covenant, the good things to come. The first covenant always the first covenant always presupposed a second. And the second new covenant is forever established. Christ having died once for all, for all his people, for all their sin, never to be repeated again. Do you know what that means for you? 
Sin removed. We sang it over and over in the songs that we sang. Sin removed. Guilt gone. So if you are looking for ways to make things right to God, to be right before God, to find forgiveness, to deal with your guilt, I have good news. You need look no longer. His name is Jesus.